Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai. Very good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band across Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to far West Africa. I'm Jazz Arad on the show with me with your news on Tensi, Tabiso Lehoko coming up with your final economic report later on, 45 to the top of the hour and Fikile Lenguati also with your final sports report. Our tough stories here in our final hour, Botswana remains committed to its ban on travellers from Ebola-stricken countries, despite criticism of its position ahead of elections in two weeks' time. We speak to Sydney Peary on the agribusiness conference underway in South Africa's coastal city of Durban. A reform of the United Nations Security Council, as well as continuing political instability on the African continent, took centre stage at the Consultative Forum on the African Union's Agenda 2063 in South Africa's capital of Pretoria. Economically, Zimbabwe's first ever purchasing managers index contracts. Sports-wise, 13,000 athletes have registered for the SPA 10-kilometer challenge series. All of that coming up in the show, but first, here's the news with Ornella and Tensi. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni has criticized the International Criminal Court for summoning his Kenyan counterpart Uhuru Kenyatta on charges of crime against humanity. Museveni has urged African countries to reconsider their membership in the tribunal. 52-year-old Kenyatta is the first head of state to come before the ICC. He has appeared at the Hague-based court before, but not after he became president. Kenyatta, his wife and the supporters who accompanied him to The Hague were welcomed by Vice President William Ruto at Nairobi Airport yesterday. The United Nations has reported its first peacekeeper death in the Central African Republic since it took over the duties of trying to calm months of unprecedented violence between Christians and Muslims. The peacekeepers died in a crash after a UN convoy was attacked in the capital, Bangui. Last night, at least 5,000 people have died following months of unprecedented violence between Christians and Muslims that has sent thousands of Muslims fleeing the country. South Africa's International Relations Minister Maite Nkwane Mashabane has arrived in Khaborone, Botswana, ahead of the launch of the Sadek election observer mission scheduled for today. She is representing President Jacob Zuma, who is chairperson of the Sadek Organ on Politics, Defense and Security Corporations. Botswana has placed a ban on travelers coming from Ebola-affected countries. The World Health Organization says although they encourage all countries to take the disease seriously, imposing travel bans will put a burden on affected countries. WHO Sarah Barber has more. Countries should not impose general bans on travel or trade. Of transmission of Ebola virus disease during travel is low. It's not easily transmitted during travel, and also the risk of transmission on an airplane is low. 
The president of Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea, the three countries worst affected by Ebola, have appealed for more aid to help fight the disease. Sierra Leone's President Ernest Koroma has told a World Bank meeting in Washington that the world has not been responding fast enough as children are being orphaned and doctors and nurses dying. Deputy Head of the World Health Organization, Bruce Alward, says has told the same meeting that the response is not keeping up with the disease. First, the situation is worse than it was 12 days ago. The disease is entrenched in the capitals. 70% of the people affected are definitely dying from this disease, and it is accelerating in all of the settings. The second thing I wanted to communicate is the response is behind, but there is a solid foundation to build on. And finally, the death penalty has no place in the 21st century and should be abolished. This according to United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon on the occasion of World Day Against the Death Penalty, marked on the 10th of October annually. He says the death penalty fails to deter crimes more than other punishments. Ban is urging leaders where the death penalty is still used to commute or pardon death sentences and to impose paratoriums on executions. The taking of life is too irreversible for one person to inflict on another. We must continue arguing strongly that the death penalty is unjust and incompatible with the fundamental human rights. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Botswana remains committed to its ban on travelers from Ebola-stricken countries despite criticism of its position ahead of elections in two weeks' time. The country, which has been regarded as a bastion of democracy in the past 20 years, is now being viewed in a negative light. South African-based political analyst Ralph Mateka says it is shocking for that government to have taken such a position. The African Union and other political watchdogs have also expressed concern at the position adopted by the Botswana government. Lucas Modiberi reports. Following the outbreak of a deadly virus in West Africa, several countries have adopted precautionary measures to protect their citizens. However, Botswana took a decision that many believe was extreme to impose travel bans on all visitors, traders and delegates from Ebola-stricken countries. This is despite a call by the World Health Organization and political watchdogs for all countries to leave traveling bans. Now, with the election date set for October 24th, concerns have been raised whether Botswana will temporarily hold the restrictions to allow some of the election monitors from those affected countries to enter Botswana's borders. However, the Botswana Health Ministry remained resolute on their decision to impose the restrictions. Shinas Halabi is with the ministry. Entry of Ebola viral disease into the country still apply. There's been no changes to the current restrictions that are in place. The World Health Organization says, although they encourage all countries to take the disease seriously, imposing travel bans will put a heavy burden on affected countries. The Husar Barba says all traveling bans will be lifted. 
countries should not impose general bans on travel or trade. Of transmission of Ebola virus disease during travel is low. On the other hand, political watchdogs have raised concerns with regard to the openness and fairness of the elections. Political analyst Ralph Mateka. Well, certainly it is going to raise concerns about uh, Botswana's uh, uh, commitment to open democracy. It's quite unreasonable. Meanwhile, the African Union says it is also concerned by the stances taken by Botswana. Speaking from the AU's headquarters in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa, Sisi Potriter says they will urgently engage with Botswana regarding the decision. The concern from the Commission was that we should not, that we should not impose more burdens on the three countries concerned. Meanwhile, the South African Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Maitengwana Mashabani, has arrived in Botswana to launch the SADC Elections Observers Mission. I'm Lucas Mutibedi, Khaboroni in Botswana. Rights Group Survival International has revealed hundreds of cases of beatings, arrests and abuses suffered by the Kalahari Khoisan people in Botswana at the hands of wildlife officers and police in the latest report titled They Have Killed Me, The Persecution of Botswana's Bushmen, 1992-2014. to The organization details over 200 cases of violent abuse recorded in a period of 13 years. The United States has labeled Botswana's discrimination against the Khoisan people as a principal human rights concern. A 2006 High Court ruling upheld the Khoisan's right to live and hunt inside the reserve, but the government has imposed a nationwide hunting ban, effectively starving them off their land. Meanwhile, rich trophy hunters are encouraged to hunt protected species on private game ranches. More from Rachel Stenham, campaign at Survival International. So this report is just showing how systematic the abuse has been against the Bushmen by Botswana's authorities. There are over 200 cases of violence, intimidation, arrest used against the Bushmen, primarily for the Bushmen who have been attempting to hunt to feed their families inside the reserve. The Bushmen are the best conservationists. They've been looking after the Central Kalahari Game Reserve for tens of thousands of years. And it was only after diamonds were discovered on their land that the Botswana government decided to change its policy and begin to crack down on the Bushmen's activities so that they were forced to leave the reserve. Survival's been receiving these reports over the last 20 or so years, and we've decided to collaborate all of the reports of the violence used against the Bushmen, um, put it together into a report to show the world and to show the Botswana public that this abuse has been going on for a very long time indeed. Just last month, the Khoisan people were said to have been taking the government of Botswana to court. What exactly came out of that? The case hasn't yet been heard. We don't know exactly where the case is at the moment. They have submitted the case to the court. This is against the nationwide hunting ban in Botswana, which is, of course, going to affect the hunter-gatherer Bushmen more than anybody else. We are yet to hear what is the result of, of that case. What response has there been from different governments around the world? There's been a huge show of support all around the world for the Bushmen's rights. Many people, high-profile people, including government spokespeople as well, have spoken out against the Botswana government's treatment of the Bushmen. The UN Special Rapporteur has spoken out, the US State Department, members of the British Parliament, 
there have been, you know, huge outcries all over the world, but they still don't seem to be reaching the rather deaf ears of the Botswana government, or the government is just choosing to ignore these calls to respect the Bushmen's rights. That's Rachel Stenham campaign at Survival International, and she was talking to Khomotso Mopulani. Now, a question of the day is, despite the fact that Botswana remains committed to its ban on travelers from Ebola-stricken countries, and despite a call from the World Health Organization, who has encouraged countries to take the disease seriously, but to impose travel bans would put a burden on affected countries. Our question being, do you feel it's right to deny people from West African countries access to the rest of Africa and the world. Email us, info at channelafrica.org or SMS plus 2782-332-5905. Twitter at Rise and Shine Africa or uh, at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now on with the show, a one-day workshop on Somalia has ended in the Kenyan capital of Nairobi, with experts saying despite the recent dislodging of al-Shabaab from strategic places, the militants remain a threat ahead of the country's 2016 first national presidential and parliamentary elections in 25 years. James Shimanyula reports. The Nairobi workshop on Somalia brought together more than 400 participants drawn from Somalia, the rest of African countries, Europe, and the United States. Emmanuel Kisiangani, senior researcher at the Nairobi branch of the Institute of Strategic Studies, was one of the participants. Kisiangani thinks that Somalia's Al-Shabaab militants were recently dislodged from strategic places in the own of African nation, are still a threat. I think Al-Shabaab are going to still remain alive. They have been driven from uh, certain places, certain uh, key towns, but they have just simply dissolved into the population. They are weakened economically uh, because they have been driven from strategic areas where they used to get their revenue. But I think it will take some time before they are totally vanquished because they still have the weapons and other than the killing of their leader, they still have the structure that existed before. So um, I, they still pose a threat. Kisiangani spotlighted at the security situation in Somalia before the country holds elections in 2016. I doubt uh, the country has been in war for over 25 years. You have people who have grown up who have never known anything other than war. So changing this around will not take uh, um, an event or two years. So I'm a bit skeptical. I think it looks quite difficult for the country to have the universal suffrage. That is a one-man, one-vote by 2016. I think they will work around that, uh, possibly try to increase the number of people who will participate, but it will not be possibly uh, everyone in Somalia. I asked Kisiangani if he thought that once elections are held in Somalia in 2016, the country 
would be under the atmosphere of peace and tranquility. I doubt, like I've said, uh, we most likely have representative elections where groups representing certain interests uh, gather, say, in Mogadishu. Because you have rural areas right now that are still under the control of uh, Al-Shabaab. So it's going to be very, very uh, difficult for the country to have uh, elections uh, in the whole of the country. Kisiangani also took a closer look at the security situation and proposed that time has come for the African Union troops to be increased from the current 22,000. I think it is, they are not enough. If you look at context like even here in Kenya, where well, we have so many troops, we have policemen, we have many security agencies, but still we have incidences of insecurity. So it's very difficult for 20,000 uh, Amisom forces to cover each and every inch of Somalia. So I think they will need to improve, particularly in other areas, by uh, uh, helping the government in terms of uh, strengthening, particularly the police. Uh, sector so that they can also complement the work of AMISOM. So in a nutshell, I think uh, the troops, uh, if, if uh, they have to capture ground and also maintain that ground, uh, possibly if they're not increased, then they will need to increase other agencies like the security, the police force, who can help uh, with that uh, particular role. On whether or not stability is in the offing for Somalia, Kisiangani had this to say think if you look at Somalia what it is and from what it was five years ago then uh, we are very optimistic things have changed uh, you have a lot of activities going on constructions and other industries uh, diplomatic missions being established so it's positive uh, but I, I think like I said it will be a long 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 process uh, taking several possibly to run into I mean decades before we can have uh, absolute stability in Somalia that was Emmanuel Kisiangani, senior researcher at the Nairobi branch of the Institute of Strategic Studies. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. NGOs, farmers, groups and indigenous organizations from across the world are coming together today as part of the Our Land, Our Business campaign to denounce the World Bank's Doing Business Rankings. The campaign, endorsed by over 235 organizations, will stage creative resistance events at the bank's annual meetings in Washington, D.C., and nine other cities around the world. The D.C. event is drawing support from a wide range of activist communities, including Occupy groups who will join representatives of impacted communities from Kenya, Mali, and Ethiopia. Anurada Mittal, executive director and founder of Think Tank, the Oakland Institute in the United States. Definitely, our land our business campaign is a multi-continental campaign endorsed by over 235 groups, which include farmer organizations, trade unions, as well as civil society members from around the world. It really originated in the idea that as we see resource theft, theft of land and water across developing countries, and while communities are standing up to these so-called investors who are coming into the communities, they wanted to challenge the real drivers of land grabs. It really challenged World Bank, which is promoting policies, which is resulting in theft of the resources. So this campaign was launched at the spring meetings of the World Bank with very clear demands asking for an end of doing business rankings. 
which basically are rankings which uh, rank countries on the ease of doing business. So, for instance, if you are South Africa, say, well, to make it easy for foreign investors, we get rid of labor laws, we get rid of minimum wage, you get a good ranking. As a neighboring country, I say, hey, guess what? I do all of this, and I even get rid of the need of environmental impact assessments. You get an even better ranking. So it's a race to the bottom, which the civil society is standing up to. Now, you say the campaign will be staging creative resistance events at the World Bank's annual meetings in Washington, D.C. What do you mean by creative resistance events? Well, it is very exciting that around the world, from South Africa to London to Washington, D.C., to Nigeria to Sierra Leone, people and organizations and communities are coming together to send a very strong message to these international financial institutions that it is the land belongs to the communities and they have no business to be coming up with policies that lead to communities losing their land. So there are going to be many actions of creative resistance. For instance, in Washington, D.C., we will have Reverend Billy, who has been a very key part of the occupied movement. We will have speakers. Uh, We will have artists who are sending a clear message to the bank that it is our land, our business. It is not a commodity that the bank can uh, come up with policies to and see it as merely a marketable good. You've told us some about the business rankings. Now, could you just elaborate on what is called in the press release the new benchmarking, the business of agriculture project? What is this? You know, thank you for asking. That's a very good question. So just for the listeners to understand that we all know about structural adjustment programs. When they were ended because of the opposition, you know, global opposition to them in 2002, the bank came up with a new monster, which is the doing business rankings. And as I explained, it has created a race to the bottom where countries are seen good for doing business if they have human rights violations, if they do not have any kind of respect for social environmental labor standards. It is so problematic that an internal review done by the bank last year showed that the doing business rankings are not helpful and in fact should be done away with. Instead of stopping doing business rankings, because of the pressure from the G8 and the Gates Foundation, the bank has now started new rankings which apply to agriculture. It is called Benchmarking the Business of Agriculture. It is a project which has been launched this year and again, our campaign is demanding not just an end doing business rankings, but also stopping this project, which is going to be devastating when it comes to agrarian economies and agricultural economies around the world. You've mentioned also that the rankings are tools of a pro-corporate, anti-poor, environmentally unsustainable model of development. Now, is it only the developing economies that are the casualties, or rather, the ones that are exploited in this manner by the World Bank? Well, definitely. I mean, if you look at the rich resources of the developing countries. Let's look at Cambodia, where 76% of the arable land is today leased to foreign investors. So you and I might say, well, it is not a purchase, it is lease. These are 99-year leases. When, uh, you know, investors, so-called investors are headed to Africa, they're going to Africa because they're lured by its rich resources, which, by the way, are available for as cheaply as anywhere from 40 cents a hectare to, say, $7 a hectare. These are lands for which you would pay over $26,000 per hectare in the United Kingdom. Or even in the United States, you would be paying at least fourteen to $17,000 per hectare. And these are resources which are seen as being available. Nobody lives on the land. 
So the indigenous communities, the pastoralists, the smallholder farmers who have been feeding communities, who are the backbone of our food security, are basically seen as invisible and dispensable for these so-called large-scale development projects by the World Bank and the governments they support. Agriculture is the backbone of most African economies. Women who dominate African agriculture do not enjoy the limelight and recognition they deserve. Environmental and climate change challenges are posing a great threat to African agriculture. As the bulk of African agriculture is rain-fed, uh, these are just a few things that came out of the conference themed Investing in African Women Opening, <clears throat> opening the Space for Agribusiness in Progress in South Africa's coastal city of Durban. Its aims are to discuss ways in which agribusiness can be aligned to the activities of African women. Smallholder farmers, governments in African countries have been called upon to support women, especially those in rural areas, in fighting poverty through agriculture. We're now joined on the line by Sydney Peary, who is attending the conference in Durban. Morning, Sydney. Morning, morning. Now, what has come out of this conference? Has progress been made in assisting African women in agriculture? Yeah, we, we can say that. What we know here is uh, uh, de deliberations from yesterday uh, really uh, showing that uh, maybe out of the uh, outcomes here, uh, there's going to be a direction uh, towards achieving uh, a sustainable agriculture, especially for women. Uh, and do you know what's, what is expected today? Yes, uh, the uh, participants really are going to uh, talk about uh, policy and institutional support, where uh, they'll be saying uh, they'll be looking at the incentives and challenges for women, uh, especially in agribusiness uh, agri uh, promotion. Because uh, right now uh, there is a concern that uh, not much, you know, is coming uh, through, you know, the, the deliberations, uh, conferences, and uh, uh, they are saying, you know, they need to be a fund that is supposed to uh, help, you know, women, uh, especially the smallholder farming. Well, that's something to look forward to, Sydney, and hopefully we'll speak to you again with regard to what comes out of today's conference. Okay, that was Channel Africa's Sydney Piri here on the line on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you, Sydney. Have a good day. Thank you. This is Africa Rise and Shine, a reformed United Nations Security Council as well as continuing political instability on the African continent took center stage at the Consultative Forum on the African Union's Agenda 2063 in South Africa's capital of Pretoria. That's where dozens of civil society organizations were discussing strategies to bring about stability and fast-track socioeconomic transformation on the continent. Resolutions of the forum will be part of inputs to be made on 2063 framework paper. Amos Pajo reports. 
Some delegates believe that South Africa or Nigeria should have a permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council. This will ensure that challenges facing the continent are thoroughly examined. Ditlar Rabele works for the Human Rights Institute and has done research in conflict-prone areas such as Sudan. She says having a permanent African representative on the Security Council will also ensure that the continent is not used by Western powers to settle political scores. Right now, the UN Security Council membership is only countries from the West. We don't have any permanent African representative in there. And most of the conflict that they are dealing with are in Africa. And that, in a way, is making some of us uncomfortable in the way the UN Security Council is making uh, interventions in Africa. We have the African court, which is based in uh, Tanzania. But it's not clear why the ICC is not collaborating with the African court. Continuing civil unrest on the continent over religion also dominated the discussions. Tautau Haramanuba is the chairperson of the Rastafarian United Front. He says with more than 2,000 tribes that exist in Africa, the continent has never experienced high levels of violence over religion until in recent years. He says it is important that African leaders take steps to ensure that religious differences do not translate into civil conflicts. We need an Africa that is free from foreign religions because foreign religions are the major cause of the conflicts in the continent. As I pointed out, that Central African Bangui from last of last last year, when they began to overthrow government, was Muslims slaughtering Christians. But the people who are killed, they are African people, and the religion is not African. You you go to Sudan, Southern Sudan, Northern Sudan, it's, it's divided on religious basis. The, the victims is African people, Boko Haram. The, the motive force behind Boko Haram is a foreign religion, it's Islam. But who are the victims? African people. So we are victims of everything, like epidemics are now endemic to Africa. So we're going to have to answer hard questions. We're going to have to take hard decisions. We're going to have to be very unpopular. But we can't go on with this neo-colonial narrative. International Relations Minister Maiten Kwanamashabani has lauded the delegates for their enthusiasm on what she calls a prosperous African She says the forum must ensure that workable strategies are developed to tackle challenges facing the continent. The African civil society is best positioned to reflect upon Africa's past, draw appropriate lessons, as well as examine the present and the future in order to propose measures to address past challenges and forge ahead a development path that our people yearn for. In this regard, we need to provide recommendations on what policies and strategies should be implemented to ensure a better, technologically advanced and highly competitive Africa in 2063 with meaningful and productive engagements with its relevant stakeholders. Resolutions of the forum are to be included in the Agenda 2063 framework paper, which will be forwarded to Cabinet for consideration. Similar consultations are also taking place in other African countries. I'm Amos Paho in Pretoria. Now time for the news headlines on LN Tinti.
The United Nations has reported its first peacekeeper death in the Central African Republic since it took over the duties of trying to calm months of unprecedented violence between Christians and Muslims. A reformed United Nations Security Council as well as continuing political instability on the African continent takes center stage at the Consultative Forum on the African Union's Agenda 2063 in South Africa's capital Pretoria. And today marks World Day Against the death penalty. Channel Africa News. The South African Department of Environmental Affairs has signed a historical biodiversity offset agreement with the South African National Parks and Vele Colliery Coal for Africa Limited. The Biodiversity Offset Agreement is based on the ecosystem approach to biodiversity management. It approaches, it promotes, I beg your pardon, it promotes the integrated management of land, water, and natural capital to achieve optimal conservation and sustainable development of the Mapungubwe Cultural Landscape World Heritage Site. Wandile Kalipa compiled this report. The concept of sustainable development is at all times interpreted according to the prevailing conditions, taking advantage of communities around the world who are faced in most cases with no other alternative but to accept the views that each and every activity carried out to improve their livelihood is a godsend to deal with the adverse conditions they are faced with. South Africa's Department of Environmental Affairs signed a said historical biodiversity offset agreement with the South African National Parks and Vela Colliery to carry out its mining operations not far from the Mapungubje heritage site. David Brown, Chief Executive Officer of Coal of Africa Limited, says this agreement will benefit the local communities and the Mapungubje World Heritage Site. Well, there are a number of initiatives that will be taking place within the biodiversity agreement. There's going to be a committee formed with all three parties being members of that committee, and they'll then be working through in terms of a list of priorities that are required. There are a number of initiatives that will obviously benefit the Makambugwe Natural Park area, and that will increase jobs availability for local communities. Mining operations taking place in countries that are involved in this extractive industry, looking at areas such as Mapungubia, how safe will be the biodiversity with regards to the various species endemic to the region, both flora and fauna? Yeah, look, there is a buffer zone that has been created through discussions which included UNESCO and government as well as other companies. And effectively that buffer zone means that the area of the cultural heritage and the environmental aspects are well protected because there's no mining or activities within the buffer zone and the mining is well outside of that buffer zone. So there should not be impacts through onto the Makambugwe heritage site. Mining requires a lot of water for its operations and the vulnerable situation of this natural source in the area of Mapungubia. In particular, the question that needs to be answered is to how is it going to be addressed as the region is prone to drought. Look, this particular biodiversity agreement obviously looks after the environment. It's not necessarily concerned with 
the water aspects. The water aspects are regulated by the Department of Water Affairs and obviously as a company we have agreements and regulations which we have to adhere and those will specify the types of water and the amounts of water that we as a mine can utilise. I think you have to realise that there are obviously lots of other competing, shall we say, businesses that will utilise water, for instance farming. Farming is very water intense in terms of growing crops and particularly irrigation farming. So effectively what it is is this agreement really recognises that there needs to be a cooperative spirit in terms of economic and social development along with effectively other activities in the area. Tumega and Klogo for World Heritage Management at the South African Department of Environmental Affairs says the mining operations will be carried out without impacting on the protection of Mapungubia. The mining operations, the impacts were determined and hence we are now signing the biodiversity offset agreement. And out of that was the impact is minimal and can be mitigated. So the biodiversity offset agreement itself aims at maintaining the integrity of the World Heritage Site and we also want to strengthen the cooperation between the partners towards sustainable development of the World Heritage Site. And we also want to just make sure that the communities around benefit from the development that is taking place around the World Heritage Site. The local communities were engaged in various forums to ensure that the mining operations do not impact negatively on their livelihoods. The communities, there are various forums that have been established throughout all the activities that are taking place there. There have been a number of consultative forums which the communities sit in. There is even an environmental management committee that sits where communities are represented. There is also a park forum where communities also sit. So communities have been consulted in various forums. Where does this agreement put the alternative ways of local economic development such as ecotourism instead of mining operations? The agreement has got three themes or areas that is going to address. One is biodiversity conservation, where we are looking at acquiring land to add to the protected area network or consolidating some pieces of land as protected area. The other one is cultural heritage management, which will look at rehabilitation of the archaeological sites, rock art heritage site protection and interpretation, as well as a laboratory that will also house act as a storage area for the artifacts that will have been collected or have already been collected around Mapungubi. But there is also a tourism development element, which includes upgrading and maintenance of the road network. All those activities are aimed at creating jobs and making sure that people are also involved in the other various activities taking place in Mapungubi. Yes, it will contribute to the local economic development. That was Tumegan Klogo for World Heritage Management at the South African Department of Environmental Affairs. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Wandile Kalipa in Johannesburg. On the 15th of October, millions of Mozambicans will be going to the polls to elect a new president. These will be the most exciting and hotly contested elections since the first in 1994. The main contenders are the ruling Frelimo, main opposition Renamo and MDM parties.
Channel Africa will be in Mozambique to bring you daily events from the country's main regions until the Poland Day. We will bring you the developments in six languages, namely English, French, Portuguese, Kiswahili, Silozi and Chinyanja. So join us from the 13th to the 17th of October for all the information you need about the important event. Let Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, be your link to the Mozambique 2014 presidential elections. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Africa's biggest historical festival, the Mangaung Cultural Festival, Makufe, takes place this weekend in the Free State's province city of Bloemfontein. The annual event will see great performances taking the stage by storm. One of the highlights for the festival will be the Amstel Golden Hour, which will see the legendary South African musician Ringo Madlingozi take the stage for an hour, supported by Ayo. Madlingozi says this will be his seventh year at the festival and is honored to be part of this event. It is my honor that I have been invited. This is the seventh time that I'm doing Makupe. And mostly now, this time, I'm invited to be on the Golden Hour, the Amstel Golden Hour, which means that my services are loved by the people and the audiences of Makupe. And definitely when I get there, I'll be singing my song. I have a string of, you know, hits that people will always love. And, you know, it is never a full show if I haven't done Sondela, I haven't done Kumnakum. And I haven't done Anunkonko and you know, all those songs. And in fact, all those songs, they have a different mood that they bring in. So it will depend on me you know, as to how the audience is. And I always feed from the emotions that I get from the audience. How do you feel about being part of this legendary festival? Being part of Makufe is always every artist's dream. It's more like a vision and a goal that most of the artists would love to see themselves in. That's when, you know, one has got to be exposed to the great majority of music-loving people, be it jazz, dance, whatever, poetry and all that. So when one is invited to Makufa, it's always an honor. I believe you've been rehearsing the whole week in preparation for the festival. You spoke about it's not a festival up until you have sang your popular song. Now you have been, <laughs> of course, been in preparation. What have you been preparing? I've been preparing my songs and, you know, and everything else. I'll be, you know, pressing the bubble if I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to be doing. It's a surprise. I just want people to be there that you know, on time that they see how we come in and how we live. Yeah. Yes. So many things are happening. You know, it's not all about but it's all about showcasing the talent of each and every one of us as a group and also other guests that we have. Before we let you go, Mr. Madrigos, maybe you can just give us a line of one of your hits, maybe Sondela. You know how it is. People who always love to hear me go Sondela, I'm gonna go Sondela. Yeah, I'm gonna vibe. Mm. 
You know, people always fall in love when you get like, you know, it's fun when I see people falling in love when I'm singing that song. And I know that some people, you know, were conceived when I was singing the song. That's Ringo Madlingosi, South African musician on the line, and he was chatting to Toto Ungobeni. Now, before we get to our economic report, uh, with that's with uh, Tabisa Lehoko, did you know that today, October the 10th, the 10th of the 10th, is World Egg Day, established by the International Egg Commission 18 years ago which actually means was 1996, held on the second Friday in October each year to raise awareness of the benefits of eggs. Now, apart from being one of nature's highest quality sources of protein and containing many of the key ingredients for life, eggs provide many interesting facts. Did you know that the average person consumes 173 eggs a year and that 40% of the world's eggs are consumed in, yeah, you guessed it, China? Or that one young lady named Sonia Thomas set a world record by eating 65 hard-boiled eggs in 6 minutes and 40 seconds in 2003. Now that's some doing, hey? Some egg-citing stuff. Okay, there you have it. National Egg Day today. Okay, and here he is on World Egg Day, Tabiso Lehoko. Thanks, Jazal. Southern Africa has cut its power deficit to 3,000 megawatts in the last year and will add another 27,000 megawatts by 2018 as countries ramp up electricity generation to meet growing demand. The region currently has a peak demand of 54,000 megawatts against the generation capacity to 51,000 megawatts and narrowing the shortfall from 7,000 megawatts a year ago. This as new power comes on stream and more people use energy-saving bulbs. Zimbabwe is one of the countries in the region hardest hit by electricity shortages, forcing homeowners and industries to endure long hours of power cuts known as load shedding. Meanwhile, South Africa's consumer assistance organization, Debt Rescue, says increasing electricity tariffs will have devastating consequences for the country's indebted consumers. Last week, the National Energy Regulator announced that the cost of electricity would increase by 12.69% next year. The organization says total debt is now topping $12 billion and the debt-to-income ratio is hovering around the 75% mark. Trade Union Kasatu says workers cannot afford what it terms the outrageous increases in the prices of basic services. South Africa's Mineral Resources Minister, Wako Ramakrodi, says that the use of technology in the mines should be welcomed where necessary. He was speaking at the Johannesburg Conference on Mining. Ramakrodi says technology should be used in dangerous mines. 
Zimbabwe's first-ever Purchasing Managers Index shows that the country's economy is in contraction. The index, conducted by the Confederation of Zimbabwe Industries, stands at 43.5, which is an indication of an economy in decline. In comparison, South Africa's PMI stood at 52.6 last month, from 51.1 in August. A PMI above 50 reflects growth in the manufacturing sector, while a PMI below 50 reflects contraction. The PMI is a diffusion index that looks at new orders, inventory levels, production, supplier deliveries and employment conditions. Insurer Liberty Holdings is in the final stages of buying an asset management firm in Ghana and also looks to Ethiopia, Rwanda and Nigeria for potential deals. Like many other South African companies, Liberty is looking past its mature home opportunity countries, home opportunities rather, in faster growing sub-Saharan markets. The strategy is in line with what that of its top shareholder, Standard Bank, which is also expanding widely on the continent. Liberty has a presence in 15 other African countries. Financial indicators at the hour. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.03 South African Rand, 9.01 Botswana Pula, 6.26 Zambian Guachas. It's also trading at 0.62 to the British pound, 0.79 to the euro. Gold, $1,222. Platinum, $1,255 an ounce. Brand crude, $88.48 a barrel. Economic update. On the 15th of October, millions of Mozambicans will be going to the polls to elect a new president. These will be the most exciting and hotly contested elections since the first in 1994. The main contenders are the ruling Frelimo, main opposition Brinamo and MDM parties. Channel Africa will be in Mozambique to bring you daily events from the country's main regions until the polling day. We will bring you the developments in six languages, namely English, French, Portuguese, Kiswahili, Silozi and Chinyanja. So join us from the 13th to the 17th of October for all the information you need about the important event. Let Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, be your link to the Mozambique 2014 presidential elections. Now time for our sports report. Yes, the Kila Linguati. Now, sports update this hour. We're starting off with the athletics. South African spa marketing officer Bruce Davidson says. A record of over 13,000 athletes have registered in the women's only race in the country, the Spa 10km Challenge Series and the 5km Fun Run. Apart from the Fun Run and the women who will be competing just to get fitness, the main focus, though, 
will be on the Spa 10km Women's Grand Prix. However, can top-of-the-table points leader Diane Lebu-Palula finally break the duck to claim her first ever Grand Prix or will Renee Kama spoil the celebration? Palula says she will be racing barefoot as usual. Uh, I would say I was inspired by Zolabad. Running barefoot, I feel more comfortable than, than running with shoes because in my mind, I think that shoes are heavy, but it's not all, like, it's not all about that. Uh, I think I feel more comfortable. I don't want to lie. Running with shoes, it's, in my mind, it's like it's heavy, things like that. All those negative things are coming in my mind, but I'll, I'll be running with shoes in, in coming years. says the decision that she took to move to the capital of South Africa has contributed positively to her success. I made a big decision by moving to Pretoria, which was a big step, but a hard one. But all I told myself, I need to perform this year. I changed the coach, now I'm training with Michael Seme. Uh, he's, my best, he's the best coach here in the world because it shows with me the way I'm performing. And all I can say, I would like to thank the guys who are helping me uh, in Pretoria, like uh, Stephen Mukoka and Stephen, uh, Stephen Mola, Precious, Precious Marcella. You know, the list is very, it's very long. I know wherever they are, they are looking. Uh, what I can say, with my discipline and uh, motivating and telling myself I just need to be motivated on what I want to do. It's a talent that I was given by God. I'm still going to use it with the right hand. Being running good this year, it's all about my performance and my discipline. And the man tasked with eliminating drug cheats says criminal gangs now control a quarter of all world professional sport. David Howman, Director General of the World Anti-Doping Agency, called for everyone involved in the fight against sports corruption to band together to ensure the bad guys don't win. Howman says those who are distributing drugs, steroids, HGH, that is human growth hormone, and anthropyotin, EPO, and so on, are the same characters who corrupt athletes and pay money to fix the games. The biggest threat to sport is organized crime. Don't let's compartmentalize it into match fixing or bribery. It's organized crime. And I think now organised crime controls at least 25% of world sport in one way or another. Those guys who are distributing drugs, steroids and HGH and EPO and so on are the same guys who are corrupting people, the same guys who are paying money to people to fix games. They're the same bad guys, as Michael was just saying. Now, the good guys have to prevail. Who are the good guys? Let's get them together and make sure that they can work out a plan because otherwise the bad guys are going to win. In football news, South Africa's Bafana Bafana needs two crucial wins that will put them in a commanding position in the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers. Bafana will go into Saturday's match against Congo with a slight psychological advantage. They've won four times in past clashes along three draws and only one loss. Bafana Bafana flew out earlier yesterday to prepare for war against Congo Brazzaville at Point Noir Stadium. And FIFA President Seb Blatter has called for a rethink of the away goal rule. The system in some two-leg games sees the team which has scored the most goals on the road triumph if the aggregate score is level. Writing in FIFA Weekly, Blatter points out the idea dates back to a time when away games were often an adventure, but he now believes it favours the club that plays away from home in the second leg. 
Blatter says it is time to rethink the system. The away goals rule may now be questioned. Does the away goal rule still make sense? And finally, with boxing news, South African boxer Tommy Uotaisen will fight a Russian, Denis Grachev, at Emperor's Palace on the 15th of November. On the undercard of the tournament at the venue near Kempton Park in South Africa's Gauteng province, unbeaten Kevin Lirina will face veteran Johnny Muller in a cruiserweight bout. Another local favorite, Ali Funega, will fight unbeaten Russian Roman Balayev for the IBO welterweight title. Wolstensen, who was once regarded as the golden boy of South African boxing, has been ranked sixth best super middleweight in the world and won the IBO title, but has not fought in almost a year. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And that wraps up Africa who rise and shine for today. From myself, Chazara, producer Tracy Boomgaard, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thanks for listening. Any comments about our show, email us at info at channelafrica.org or SMS plus 27823325905. Take us to top of the hour for the news. Here's Bob Marley with Africa Unite on Channel Africa. See